Our text this morning is from Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7, if you'd turn there, page 1197 in your pew Bibles. Our text today is the second warning passage in the book of Hebrews. Now as we consider the warning passages within Hebrews, they continue to escalate as we move along. These are not the easiest passages to preach. I'm reminded of Jude who said he wanted to come as he wrote his letter to share his common salvation. And as a pastor, we love to talk about the joy of the Lord and the blessings that we have in Christ. But sometimes the Lord would call us to recognize the warnings that exist. And so it is today. Well, we all understand warnings. We see them all around us in the traffic signs and the other things that are going on throughout our world. We even at times know them when we see them in different languages, don't we? When you see the words in, in German, perhaps, Achtun or Verboten, we understand that that's not where we ought to be going. Even in, in Spanish, Peligro, Atención, or Prohibido, we know those are warnings that we're not supposed to be going there. And, and each sign has a purpose, doesn't it? The purpose is safety. The purpose is our protection. The purpose is our own good. Sometimes to protect us from ourselves. And so it is in our text this morning. As common as warnings are, we, we run into a rather unique warning in our text today. But it is a warning to be sure. And so I've titled our message this morning, A Vital Message, Pay Attention. A vital message. Pay attention. Let's read our text together in Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Actually, I'm going to go to verse 1 for context because the, it, there's a very intricate link to our first section. So I'm going to read from the beginning of chapter 3 down through verse 11. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he had, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all things in his house as a servant for a testimony of these things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. A vital message 
pay attention. The first warning passage was back in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2. And we saw that as a parenthesis. We'd been moving along in the flow in the discussion of Christ's superiority over the angels. And then those four verses kind of jumped in in the middle of the text to give us a warning. And they were in light of all that we had read through the first chapter. Specifically, the strong warnings per all that God had said. After all the spoken words of chapter 1, and we remember how often the word spoken or speaking was used. In verse 1 of chapter 1, God speaking through the prophets. God speaking through his son. God speaking through the angels. God speaking through creation, even through man. And particularly as he spoke through the son of man. And then we hit the warning passage of chapter 2 and verse 1. With all this speaking, the thought was, we'd better be listening. Paying much closer attention, as verse 1 of chapter 2 said. Lest we drift away. If, beloved, we have a responsibility for what we hear and we do. And every disobedience is punished, as the warning passage told us. Then we better pay attention. What happens if we disobey? Or as verse 3 of chapter 2 said, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If all that we've heard we ignore and we continue to disobey, how will we escape? Well, it's a rhetorical question because the answer is we will not escape. A salvation proclaimed here through all the spoken word and a salvation evidenced through Christ, validated by signs and wonders and miracles, by God himself testifying through his spirit that dwells in us, that we understand these things are true. And although it is the spirit of God that illumines his word to us, the knowledge of God exists in every heart. Romans 1 tells us that he has implanted it in everyone whom he has created, that none are without excuse. This was a strong warning. And now it's ramped up even further and another level as we get to our first point of our message today. That first point is a present warning. A present warning in Hebrews 3. The speaking continues now for us in verse 7. Now through the Holy Spirit speaking, as we see there in verse 7. Now we understand, and if we were to look a little further, and we will in the near future, to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 7, we would recognize that in that text, we're told that the following quote of Psalm 95 is written by David. Now we might not think much of that, but if we go back to the Old Testament, and we will shortly, and look at Psalm 95, it is not ascribed to David. So the text in Hebrews 4.7 is additional revelation to tell us more about what God is showing us, who is the speaker through whom the Holy Spirit is bringing forth this truth. Beloved, this confirms the testimony of the Holy Spirit. It confirms the authority and inerrancy of the Word of God, which we hold to with all of our hearts and with all of our souls as our sole source of existence, that in which exists all means for all matters of life and godliness. It's what we see in 2 Peter 1.20, where it confirms that truth about itself. 
And it says in 2 Peter 1.20, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. In other words, no man just came and wrote, said, Yeah, I think I'm just going to write this down. No, and the verse goes on in verse 21. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is the word of God being brought to us. 2 Timothy 3.16, which we're very familiar with, also confirms this point, where it says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That phrase, inspired by God, is, is theopneustav. It means literally God breathed. That this text that we hold is not the function of men. It is not a collection of wonderful writings of men who, who loved God but came up with this thing on their own. It could not be. Imagine if we were to try and write down the events of this morning's equipping hour or your preparation in coming to church, and two of you were to write down events which you were both existent for the entire time, would those writings agree? No. There would be discrepancies. And we'd say, well, no, that, that wasn't really what happened. You know, Peter was really up before Averill, and, and they had breakfast together, and, and the milk and the cereal that he had really wasn't spoiled, e even though it was. It was a special start for him this morning. <laughs> this is last Sunday. So we would never come up with this kind of cohesive book written over 2,000 years by 40 different authors and 66 different books. But that's what we have, perfectly in harmony with one another. All confirming the inerrancy of this book by the Holy Spirit, the one author speaking through men continuously to bring us this scripture. Well, the previous speaking of God in chapter 1, the speaking of the apostles in 2.5, and of David in uh, Hebrews 2.6-8, through 8, the speaking of Christ from the end of chapter 2 through, through his living testimony, through that life which he led that we look at, through the prophetic testimony of Psalm 22, and then in our text last week, through the testimony of Moses in chapter 3, it's continuous speaking. And now the third person of the Trinity himself is speaking in this escalated warning. Do not mistake the source of the warning. It comes directly from God. He says, today, if you hear his voice. The word today is a comparative term. It recognizes today alongside of a former day, something that existed in the past. It is something that is to be highlighted above the previous days and of the previous occurrences of one's life. We must recognize today as a new beginning. One commentator notes that the main idea conveyed is the urgency of today. Beloved, if you hear anything, listen to this point. The urgency is today. It's a new opportunity to reflect upon yesterday's mistakes and all the yesterdays of our lives. But beloved, those are all past. Today is the day that we have to consider what God has for us, what he would bring us in his word, what we would learn about all of the life's experience that have come to us, but what we would do moving ahead, for we cannot go back. 
We have to leave those behind as we cannot change the past. And isn't this the wonderful testimony that Paul brings to us in Philippians 3? One of my favorite texts in Scripture, Philippians 3 and verse 12, where the great apostle says, not that I have already obtained it. You know that does my heart good? To consider that the apostle himself says that he hasn't attained it. If I'm not there yet, it's okay. If you're not there yet, it's okay. God expects us to consider today and to move ahead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Do you hear the immediacy? Do you hear the recognition that you have not done everything perfect in the past? And not that he will do everything perfect in the future, but he's going to press on. He's going to try. He's going to say, yeah, I've not gotten it right yet, but I want to do better. I want to understand that today is the day. This is the same point that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians 6.2 where he says there to the church of Corinth in his second letter in chapter 6 and verse 2, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is the same emphasis that Paul was just showing to us about recognizing today, pressing ahead, reaching forward. In Acts 17.30, when he was on Mars Hill, he had the same focus where he said in Acts 17 and verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Beloved, if you are here today and you do not know Christ as your Savior or you're perhaps expecting that you do but not really sure, now is the hour of salvation. Today is the day. Now is the time to forget what lies behind and to reach ahead to consider what God has given to each of us. Each one must grasp this idea of today. It's, it's not just that I'm speaking to those who may be here and don't know the Lord. Absolutely. I want everyone that's an unbeliever. I want all of you young people who are sitting there and thinking, you know, I really don't know Christ. I want you to recognize that you need him. That without him you are lost and separated and going to hell. But it is not just the unbeliever that needs to recognize this. It is the new believer. The must know, yes, you have Christ, but there's a mountain yet to climb. But God is with you. It is the mature believer who has walked with the Lord for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. There's more for you to do. There's greater growth. It is to put behind what you have seen and to say, I have more to do. I have more to accomplish. I have more obedience that I must issue for Christ. Beloved, where are you today? Today, if you hear his voice. Do you hear his voice? If you hear, then you must do something about it. It is incumbent upon you to react to that voice. And from this we know a present warning applies to everyone. 
The comparative today is not left ambiguous as some past time of, well, just in general, anything in the past. But verse 8 specifies that there is a particular past that's being considered. A day of trial in the wilderness. A specific past time of failure. A warning of what they did. And as the Jewish audience reflected upon this, they would understand keenly what was being discussed. Those who would remember well this illustration. And beloved, for those of us that have been any time in the Word of God, we know this illustration well also. And what is the warning? You must not harden your hearts. This is the present warning, one which we all must understand, one which applied to the Jewish church that was being written to, but it applies just as surely to you and I today. And the contrast here is that idea, as we notice from these verses, of hearing and hardening. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is what happens when we do not obey what we hear. We see a clear warning sign given for our protection. So that we don't run scripture's red light and end up in a fiery crash that results in our eternal demise. Yet the original context of these verses reflects back to the Old Testament, specifically back to Psalm 95. And I'd like to ask you to turn there in your Bibles with me. Psalm 95, page 609 in your pew Bibles. And as we turn, our focus moves from the present to the past. And so also from our first point to our second. From a present warning now in our second point to a past warning in Psalm 95. This is a, a, very, a very different context than our previous section in Hebrews. It's a, it's a present warning that came in the form of an exhortation that we saw in Hebrews. A reminder of Moses' faithfulness and the greater faithfulness of Christ as a son. And our admonition that we are Christ's house if we hold fast. If we remain in our confidence. A reminder of the continued action that's required of us. Then we hit the warning if we don't hold firm to the end. And now in Psalm 95, we have a different transition, one that signifies a past warning. Let's read our verses together in Psalm 95, beginning in verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for it was he who made it and his hand formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart 
and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. Verse 1 shows that different tone I spoke of. You see the jubilant nature that exists there in verse 1 of Psalm 95? Singing for joy, shouting joyfully. And we see the source of that exaltation also in verse 1. It is the Lord who in the parallelism of verse 1 of the Psalms is also the rock of salvation. Now this rock is a pivotal reference in Psalm, in this Psalm. Verse 8 references that the, the word Meribah, and it was there that Moses struck the rock to bring forth the water to the generation that was wandering. In fact, Numbers 20:13 says, those were the waters of Meribah because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord and he proved himself holy among them. So as this rock in verse 1 of Psalm 95, the rock of our salvation, is a reflection to that time Meribah that is later revealed, we know something more about that rock too. Very interesting for us to understand and seems rather odd, but 1 Corinthians 10.4 in the New Testament talks about that rock. And here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 10, and I'll just read verse 1 for context and forward. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So he sets our minds in the context of the wilderness generation, leaving Egypt and going through the Red Sea, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 10. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock of salvation from Psalm 95, the rock which is the rock of Meribah that poured forth the water, is the Lord Jesus Christ. The rock which followed them and brought the physical sustenance that they needed to live in the deserts. The Lord did not take them out to remove them and to destroy them. He brought them out to be his people, to come into his land, a good land flowing with milk and honey, a place where they would be loved and cared for and nurtured. And yet there was also the idea of spiritual salvation that existed in this. And this idea of salvation is so pivotal in this psalm as we'll see. And you'll want to note that phrase, rock of salvation, as we'll return to it shortly. Verse 2, the rejoicing continues where it says, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and shout joyfully with psalms to sing, to praise our God. Is it not a delight for us to sing to our God the praises that he alone deserves as we prepare our hearts each Sunday? And then in verse 3, the exaltation focuses on God. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. These, these comparatives are throughout scripture. That God is a great God above all gods. The Bible is not saying that there are lots of gods. There isn't. There is one God. One God and one alone. The issue becomes that people make gods in their minds. Zeus and Baal are not real gods, but people make them real. They create in their own mind a God after their own liking. And the comparison is because of the idols which they make. 
Scripture speaks about this so often. And if we go back and we consider the gods of Egypt, where they came from, do you remember the ten plagues that came upon the nation of Egypt? Do you realize that every one of those plagues was for a specific false god that existed in Egypt? And who do you suppose was empowering the people's minds or the people's minds today regarding their false conceptions? It was the enemy of God. It was Satan himself. He is the one who is behind the false gods. So there are no other gods. There is but one. And then verses 4 and 5 focus on the exaltation of God as the creator. The one who, whose hand brought the depths of the earth and the peaks of the mountains is his. The sea is his and the dry land which he has made. And then in verse 6 the psalmist proclaims the response to the creator the great God and King of all gods, the rock of salvation. And notice what that response is in verse 6. It is worship. To bow down, to kneel before the Lord. Verse 6 further expresses the reason for worship because the Lord is our maker. Beloved, God has made us and not we ourselves. And we owe him obedience for that alone. We see this throughout scripture. It was the same thing we saw referenced in Hebrews 3. Do you remember the builder of the house but, uh, who received the honor above the house? It is the same concept. The one who made is the one deserving the honor, not the thing that is made. We see the same issue and we're familiar with it from the element of the potter and the clay. Isaiah 29:16 addresses this. And it says there, you turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me? Or what is formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding? We understand that the clay is not going to speak back to the one who made it. Isaiah carries the same thing forward in Isaiah 64. In verse 8 where he says, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. And all of us the work of your hand. Do we as those made get to just throw off the, what we feel like are the encumbrances of the one who made us? Well, that's our world today, is it not? We don't care what God said. We don't care what his word says. We want to do what we want to do. I want to have it my way. I want to pursue my own lust at my own pleasure when I want. It is the, the Burger King mentality and Burger King theology. And it's exactly what our world operates on. And we become fat in our world on that diet. Not understanding that there is a right way for us to live and to obey the word of God. And it is recognizing that we must worship the one who made us. The relationship is expanded as we get to, to verse 7. And he is proclaimed as our God. And the personal nature is being emphasized. He isn't just a God who, who made everything. And fine, you're just a, a, a little you know, nano speck in the billions of people that have been made. In the, in the massive existence of this universe. No. God knows you. God loves you. He has specifically identified and created you, known you from before you were in your mother's womb. It is a personal relationship that he has with us. 
and the relationship is expanded in the second part of verse 7, where it says, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. Initially, as an engineer, this just kind of strikes me. And I'm like, something's wrong here. We've got people in hands, and we've got sheep in pasture. Those should be together. They shouldn't be separated. Is, it, is this a mixed metaphor? No, not at all. What, what he's telling us is exactly what we ought to understand, is the intimacy of the Creator and the Father, which, that was, which has been created. That we are the people of his pasture, literally of his shepherding. God knows us, beloved. He understands our infirmities. He understands our weaknesses. He understands the sin nature and the temptation which comes upon us. And he loves us. And he wants us to grow in our love for him. We are also the sheep of his hand. He has us right where he wants us. We just have to understand and obey that, to grow in our love and to recognize the one who does hold us in our hand, in his hand, and protects us from all things. The picture moves from God's sovereignty to his shepherding care. The parallels of Hebrews 3.6, whose house we are, immediately come forward. We are God's house. We are the sheep of his hand. We are the people of his shepherding. And as we discussed, that was the past warning. Verse 8 continues the quote, only here the, the Hebrew leaves untranslated the words Meribah and Massah. Hebrews 3 translates these words, and the Hebrew word for Meribah is the word that we see as rebellion. And that's what it means. Meribah was the place of rebellion. Massah is the place of, of temptation. And you'll notice that those very words are in your, uh, in your footnotes in your New American Standard Bible. The, the full translation would be identical to the Greek from Hebrews 3.7. And we would read, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Well, verse 9 reveals the problem as they tested God. There they tried God. Deuteronomy 6.16 details that temptation. Perhaps you're familiar with this verse. Deuteronomy 6.16 says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you, as you tested him at Massah. Now that, that should strike a familiar chord because it's quoted twice in the New Testament. In Matthew 4.7 and in Luke 4.12. Do you know what two events happened in those texts? You do. It is the temptation of Jesus. And it is in that temptation that is paralleled here. In these verses, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by Satan and that second temptation that is brought forward for us. By the way, that wasn't just two of three temptations that the Lord suffered. Mark tells us that Jesus was continually tempted for that full 40 days in the wilderness. But here in the second temptation, Satan takes him up upon a pinnacle and he says, throw yourself down. And then he quotes the scripture to say, for the scripture says that the angels will not allow you to stumble or to stub your toe. And Jesus responds, quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What is that telling us here regarding our text in Psalm 95? 
that these offenses at Meribah and Massah, they are on par with the satanic action and temptation of the Lord. These are the things that take us to the depth of our depravity. And verse 10 of Psalm 95 leads to the result of that temptation. And it says there in verse 10 of Psalm 95, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. 40 years God loathed them. Loathe means to have a feeling of disgust in the pit of your stomach. It's used three times in the book of Ezekiel. And each time it reflects an evil deed that those who committed it consider about themselves as they are preparing for an eternity in hell apart from God. The first one actually is in Ezekiel 6-9. When we get back on Wednesday night, that'll be the message that we're coming to. The only other place that it is used is in Job 10-1. That's where Job's assessing his own life. And he says, I loathe my life and my very existence. But here, it's a different actor. Now God is loathing. A completely different level is brought forward. And it's the only spot in scripture where God does this. Because he is hating those and the way in which they have acted. That they have hardened their hearts. And that they have tested God. An incredible consideration. The second stanza of that verse in verse 10b says, This people err in their hearts. Beloved, the problem is not our outward action. The problem is our heart. Was there anyone whose outward action should have been more keenly expressive of understanding God and obeying Him for what they had seen? This is the wilderness generation. They've just come through the Red Sea. Okay, I think that's going to be a pretty substantial event. The entire Egyptian army bearing down on you to wipe you out because you have nothing with which to defend yourself. And your leader strikes the sea and it parts. And you've got these massive standing walls of water and you walk through on dry ground. I'm pretty sure I'd be thinking that's a miracle. I don't know, I'm a little hard-headed, but I think I'd see that. I think they did too. And then the, the army falls in after them and the sea collapses and wipes them out. And all this time they've got the Shekinah glory going with them. Really? A cloud of fire every night? I mean, Averill has loved being here and seeing the lightning. You know, in California they, they have no lightning. We had some in Idaho, but a long time since we'd been there. He loved seeing it. How about... The Shekinah glory. How about a pillar of fire every night? I think you'd be going, whoa. That's a little different. Never saw that in Egypt. All of the things they have seen. It's not what we see that brings obedience, beloved. It's not, it's not the power of the church around us. It's not the expression of others in their faith. It is our hearts. Their hearts were bad they erred in their heart. They needed a heart transplant because their hearts were desperately sick and wicked. We know another place where that comes up in Scripture. And then in the third stanza of verse 10, it tells us, they did not know my ways. I love that section. Dr. Jim Roskup in his excellent exposition on prayer diagnosed the assessment 
of this generation and also of those of today's generation where he says, and I quote, the missing of spiritual blessing in God's sufficiency can be traced to a hardened, God-faulting spirit and distrust that tests God's supply. Listen to that again. The missing, the missing of a spiritual blessing in God's sufficiency can be traced to a hardened, God-faulting spirit and distrust that tests God's supply. And you think, yes, they do. Yes, they did. Beloved, how about us? Can it be, yes, we do? Is there a time where we look in God's word and we start to say, you know, I think God might be responsible. You know, this whole thing with election, what in the world? How does he get to choose? Is there an unfairness in that? Is there an injustice with God? What are we doing? Those kind of questions are faulting God. They are missing the spirit of God that shows us in his word, his benevolence, his love, his graciousness, his desire that none should perish. But we begin to fault God. Why? Because we cannot take responsibility. I cannot accept the fact that I am a dirty, rotten sinner and there is nothing good that dwells within me. That all of my righteous deeds are filthy rags. They're deplorable before God. No, we can't. You can't accept that. But it is indeed a heart condition and not knowing the ways of God. It's an extremely strong condemnation that exists in this past warning. Let's take a brief look at exactly what happened in Exodus. Turn with me back to Exodus chapter 17, page 75 in your pew Bible. Exodus 17 transitions us to our third point. We were at a present warning in Hebrews, a past warning in Psalm 95, and now we're going to go to an ancient warning in our third point, an ancient warning in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 1. Exodus 17 and verse 1. The, the children of Israel have just come out of the Red Sea, as we saw recorded in Psalm 95. The rejoicing and the triumph in Exodus 15 in seeing God's provision is quickly exchanged in Exodus 16 for their grumbling, which results in God's provision of manna. The grumbling con continues in Exodus 16, and God provides meat and says, I'll give you meat till it's running out your nostrils. And then again on the Sabbath, the people violate God's command and they don't trust God that he'll bring enough manna if they would gather twice on Saturday. So they go out again and God says, what is it with you people? Don't you get it? And then we get to Exodus 17 and verse 1. Look at it with me. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord, encamped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the t people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? A little more and they will stone me. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel. And because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Can you imagine such an expression? Well, we ought to be able to. Because, beloved, we can act exactly the same way in our hard-heartedness, in the way that we live with one another, in the way that we live with the world around us, in our unwillingness to carry forth the gospel, in our unwillingness to interact with one another in the church body in a deeper way, in our unwillingness to obey God's word and to understand it more such that we might more fully obey it. Is God among us or not? I don't know. Maybe he's here. Incredible to understand. They're grumbling. And it's even escalated to quarreling with Moses. And the direct context in verse 6 from Psalm 95.10. As he struck the rock. And then the daunting statement at the end. The story continues. And we want to look at this last section in Numbers 14. Turn ahead with me to Numbers 14. Page 155 in your pew Bibles. Numbers 14, we go to the climactic point of Israel's grumbling. We've seen it picking up, and now we're going to carry it to fruition. The whole time has been marked by grumbling, by disobedience, by disputing with Moses, but we really see it come to a head in Numbers 14 as we understand God's perspective of all of this. Numbers 14, let's look at verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? this after they'd spied out the land. Look down to verse 11 with me as the Lord weighs in on his thoughts. Verse 11 of Numbers 14. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. The Lord's fed up with these people and their disobedience and their continuous grumbling. Jump down to verse 17 as we see Moses' intercession in verse 17. But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as, also, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt 
even until now. And in verse 20, so the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. These are some of the most glorious verses in Scripture, beloved. The pardoning and forgiving power of God. Does that strike a resonant chord in your heart? Do you recognize the rebellion that existed in your life before Christ opened your eyes to who he was? This is the glory of Christ and the beauty of his forgiveness. We'll talk more about this in just a few minutes, but let's continue on down to verse 27 of our text and carry forward to this climactic end. Verse 27 of Numbers 14. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I've heard the complaint of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. In each of those previous passages, we see them complaining about their children who would be killed with them. But God promises to bring them in, carrying on in verse 32. But as for you, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness. And they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness according to the number of days which you spied out the land. Forty days for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even forty years, and you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil congregation who gather together against me in the wilderness. They shall be destroyed and there they will die. Pretty much seeker sensitive, warm, fuzzy material, don't you think? This is the way to really build a congregation. But it is the power and the truth of God's word that his wrath would be appeased. Turn back with me as we conclude to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 11. Our final verse in this text. Hebrews 3 and verse 11. The warning has been the same. It's a drastic and dramatic condition, but it's a, a consistent warning. It is a present warning which was brought to the church in the New Testament and to us today. It is a, a past warning that was brought and repeated through the psalmist in the time of David. And it is an ancient warning. And the result is the same as in Hebrews 3.11. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The rest here that we're speaking about when we looked back at the ancient text, back at Exodus and Numbers, was the rest of coming into the land. It was a physical rest. It was a rest from all of their labors in Egypt that they were to receive. And when we considered Psalm 95, there's a spiritual component that exists, which we saw from verse 1. Remember I reminded you about the rock of salvation? That rock which they struck is now revealed in Psalm 95, not just to be physical, 
But there is a spiritual dynamic. The second element and the rest of the eternal salvation which comes to those who would believe. So one of the few passages in scripture where two interpretations are legitimate within the text because there is a physical and a spiritual component revealed in the scripture. And now in the present warning, the focus changes again, ex explicitly physical, physical and spiritual. And now in Hebrews, it is explicitly spiritual. There is no longer a land which is being held before them as rest. It is the eternal rest of Christ. The land is not the promise. The promise is eternity. This is the progress of revelation which is being held forth. This is the continuation of verse 6 of Hebrews 3. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast. This is a vital message. Pay attention to it. The warning is for every one of us. Beloved, if you consider that today is a new day, a day for you to forget what lies behind, a day to hear his voice and to hearken to his word, to come to him as a new believer, to come to him as a renewed believer, to come to him as a revived believer, to carry forth his truth, to live as a new creature, holding fast your confidence, holding fast your hope firm to the end, as verse 6 of Hebrews 3 said, then this is the day of great rejoicing of Psalm 95. This is the day of ultimate singing of praises to our God, to rejoice in the rock of our salvation, a day of coming to his presence with thanksgiving, a day for us to worship and bow down before our maker. For if you are here and you know Christ, you are the sheep of his hand. You have the glory of that beautiful pasture which he will lead us by, the still water. Beloved, I pray that this is your peace today. I pray that you will consider where you are today and at this very moment. And I pray that you will commit today to hear his voice. Commit to do all in your power to honor and obey God. Commit to understand that today is a different day than every day behind you. Because today you have the power to step forward and to live a life of obedience to him. To live according to his word and now to act upon that commitment. It's a vital message. It's one we must pay attention to. But it is a glorious message is a glorious and encouraging message of new life. And I pray this message will reign in your hearts and that today this warning will bring much joy and much commitment, a commitment which all around you can see as different as from yesterday and all the yesterdays of your life because now I recognize more fully that I am required to love and obey and to worship this God, and I will not harden my heart.